Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Two out of five Aussie kids, so that's 40% of Aussie kids, are not ready for school by the time they start kinder. Because they haven't been to childcare. That's exactly right. My utopia is that early learning is free and easily accessible to all Aussie kids from the moment they're born. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Well, this morning we're very privileged to have Natalie Walker joining us here at Short Black. I read Natalie's resume, I'm exhausted just thinking about it. Just looking at it, 2012, 100 Women of Influence, 2018, the G20's Women Business Leaders Task Force, you're on the Greater Sydney Commission, you work as a non-executive director in childcare, and you've joined Nicola Forrest in her Women for Progress group, which is where I first came across you. Your resume is ridiculously impressive, but let's not start there. What you're passionate about is universal childcare. Why? It is the best way for our Australia to be as successful as possible, as fair as possible and as inclusive as possible. I can't think of any policy lever that is bigger to pull than to give all Aussie kids the opportunity to get the best start at life through early learning and be ready for school. Many people may balk at that and say, how could we possibly afford it? Well, I would say, what's the cost of not investing in that space? And it's an investment. So let me give you some numbers. Just over a million families send their kids to early learning in a year. Early learning costs, on average, 27% of family budgets. If we were to increase the investment in early learning by about $8 billion, and that sounds big, but if we were to add an additional $8 billion on top of the $3 billion, we would see for every million dollars that is invested that creates nine new jobs in our economy, those jobs are more likely to benefit women. And we're also seeing an increase in the participation of not just all Aussie kids, but Aussie kids who need the early learning the most. And that's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. That's kids from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. That's kids who have been, who are newly arrived, who currently are not eligible for the childcare subsidy. So uh, they don't get access to early learning. And so all of those things combined mean that we have women going, more women going back into the workforce, but we have their kids being ready for school And I just can't think of any better investment for our country. We're investing in the next generation of our CEOs, executives, entrepreneurs, teachers, nurses, doctors, bakers, 
builders, that's exciting to me. Yeah, it's not just the pink economy we're talking about. And look, recent statistics validate the fact that in Australia, women don't participate in the workforce like they could. I mean, we're number one in the world in terms of the educational stats for our women. And we've dropped down to 70th for the participation of women in the, in the workforce. So what you're arguing, and the stats clearly support your argument, is that um, having a child is a deterrent from full employment. It is. And, you know, the current subsidy, the way that it's structured, actually disincentivizes women from taking on additional days of work where they work part time. And so I am focusing on women because it is a fact that in our country currently that women do take on more of the caring responsibility. So that's why I focus in on women in this scenario. And the Grattan Institute has modelled this, that um, for every additional day of work that a woman takes on beyond three days of week of work because she's putting her child into childcare to take on that additional day, the cost of childcare erodes the woman's earning capacity somewhere between 60 to 100%. So it just doesn't make financial sense to take on any additional days if you're working part-time. That just doesn't make sense to me. So I hear about universal childcare, but how does it actually work? Are you saying essentially, just like primary school care, which isn't means tested, that's what you'd like to see across the board, universal access to childcare from what age? Oh, look, my utopia is that early learning is free and easily accessible to all Aussie kids from the moment they're born. And how does it help them? What advantages do they get? Because, you know, when I was growing up, childcare was done by extended family and it was really a babysitting exercise. These days, when we saw through the pandemic, the government had to rescue the industry because it was nearly broken. And early learning has been redefined. And there are stats to prove that kids' early intervention on cognitive development and a whole range of other issues is beneficial to the economy, the community at large. Yeah, absolutely. How's this? I was really startled when I learned this statistic. Two out of five Aussie kids, so that's 40% of Aussie kids, are not ready for school by the time they start kinder. Because they haven't been to childcare. That's exactly right. They haven't. And the key is high quality early learning. Now, what high quality early learning looks like is it's play-based. It focuses not just on the educational aspect, but it also focuses on age-appropriate development, social development for a child, and exposing them to the world and the things that they need to know to be able to be ready to engage with reading and writing numeracy and literacy skills when they get into kinder. Two out of five Aussie kids are not ready by the time they get to kinder in primary school, and that only compounds as they progress through school. Now, Two out of four, so 50% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids are not ready for school. So 40% of all Aussie kids and 50% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids are not ready for school. And you can just see how that compounds over time. That just perpetuates a disadvantage, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. What's the biggest hurdle? And let's not just focus on the disadvantage, but what's the biggest hurdle? I mean, today what came out was mapping Australia's childcare black spots, which was just incredible when you look at the numbers. More than one in three Australians live in a childcare desert and most childcare is saturated in markets where people can afford childcare. So, you know, you've got to live in the latte suburbs of Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and your cap cities and then outside of that, it's an oasis. 
Yep. So it's, it's an excellent piece of work and um, it just highlights that not only are there challenges in the sector and as a parent, and I'm a parent of two little kids who've had the benefit of early learning, not only is there a challenge around affordability, as I said before, 27% of family budgets go to early learning costs. So not only on an affordability issue, not only an access issue, so being able to actually, especially if I am experiencing vulnerability, knowing how to access early learning and, and getting my kid into the centre. But there's availability issues. So the further out of the cities you go, as this research highlights, the less available childcare becomes. So this is where the market response or the demand-driven model that's about a subsidy that is driven by market dynamics fails. It doesn't work in regional locations. It definitely doesn't work in remote locations in Australia. That's why a universal system that guarantees at least three days a week of high-quality early learning for all Aussie kids, regardless of where they're located, is so important because also the costs are prohibitive in a market-based model. So if you've only got 10 kids that are eligible for early learning in a regional town, the economics don't stack up for a private or not-for-profit provider to set up an early learning centre, for example, with the labour costs and with all the other costs that go along with running a high-quality early learning centre. So we need government intervention to really fundamentally value early learning and what it means for invest it's an investment in our country's future. Women for Progress state in their literature that a five billion dollar investment will equal an 11 billion dollar boost to Australia's GDP so the numbers stack up but some of the arguments against it and these are arguably false suggestions but one is that child care is for the private sector and so why should we enrich their pockets? I mean, you're going to find that lobby group pretty loud and strong. How do you combat that? I combat it by saying we need to understand the experience of those in our community that experience the most vulnerability. Of course, if we make childcare universal, then everyone can access it. That is the whole underlying premise. But what that also means is that that is everyone can access it. The most vulnerable populations can access it. I'll give you an example. So I'm the deputy chair of Good Start Early Learning, the country's largest not-for-profit early learning provider. And when the pandemic began, so as we realised that this was going to be a pandemic and the possible implications of that, we, as boards do, we had crisis meetings, we did a whole lot of modelling and forecasting and all the different scenarios and it all looked dire, regardless of which way you cut it. And if it was dire for the sector, it was dire for Aussie kids. And our biggest priority was to make sure that as much as we could assure as far as possible that during the pandemic, and we didn't know at the time how long it was going to last for, that Aussie kids did not lose their early learning and opportunity for learning early learning. So we, along with other parts of the sector and other leaders, advocated very strongly for support for the sector by government, including removing all fees and all costs for early learning, which government did for three months. What we saw in that three months was about a 50% increase in the participation in early learning of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids, culturally and linguistically diverse kids, and kids who had never accessed early learning before. 
that was start, the hardest to reach and those who need it most came into the centres. Now, cost was one factor, but the removal of the need of any bureaucracy and paperwork was the biggest factor that got those kids through the door. So flesh that out for me. What are you actually saying that our more disadvantaged sectors won't consider the paperwork mountains they have to climb so those kids never get access to childcare because it's just too hard? I even find it really hard filling in those forms and I have to fill in those forms. There's also a stigma attached. So, for example, having to actually say to a centre manager, I need help. I'm finding it hard. So you can apply for what's called an additional childcare subsidy, but it was called some um, some program. I can't remember the name, but it, it had a pejorative edge to it. It was like um, at-risk funding. And so if I'm a parent, I'm not going up. Am I going to label myself like that? Do I want others to see me and my kids that way? No, I don't. The other factor that we learned through Good Start as well was that um, there's a whole lot of fear in our parents, especially in carers from vulnerable communities, and there's fear about robo-debt. So they came in droves when childcare was free because there weren't any hoops to jump through. It was free for all, so therefore they knew that they weren't going to get a nasty surprise in a few months' time from Centrelink saying that they had a debt outstanding. We've switched back to the existing system now post the free period and that is now the experience of, uh, of parents and carers and so we've seen the enrolments of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids, kids from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, kids from low socioeconomic status backgrounds, we've seen their enrolments drop by about 40% or so. I'll be devil's advocate here, but you'll have people listening that say we have a welfare safety net and we pay for a lot of welfare to look after the socially disadvantaged. Why does that need to be paramount in our thoughts for universal childcare? I want you to sell to me, outside of the disadvantage, the universal upside to doing it. It is about investing in our future. Early learning is not welfare, firstly. It is learning. It is preparing our future generation of leaders and employers and thinkers and scientists, getting them as ready as possible for what's to come in their future and helping take our country to places we never thought it could go. So let's see early learning as exactly that. It is early learning. It's the same investment that we make in primary schools, in high schools, in universities. Let's just extend that and see it as helping to build the next generation of people that are making our country better. That's what this is about. The world has changed so profoundly, hasn't it, that the old concept of childcare doesn't really exist. It's not a babysitting service. There are so many educational advantages to being enrolled in early childcare. Exactly, Sandra. And that is a societal attitudinal shift we have to make as a country. I do think in Australia predominantly we, we don't see early learning as early learning. We see it as child care with the emphasis on care. We need to start seeing it as learning and when we start seeing it as learning, we value it differently and we can see that it's about an investment. Of course, you know, care and learning come together. As a parent, sending my kids to childcare or to school, I need to know they're safe but I also need to know that they're actually developing and they're 
they're able to read and write and they're able to socialize, they're able to problem solve, they're able to self-manage, all of those things. And so long gone, in my mind, are the days of childcare being about just care. It's about the care and the learning and it's about the readiness. And it breaks my heart to think that there are kids who go start school and they are not ready and they are already behind their peers who have been to early learning. And we know from the research that if children from the age of two attend two consecutive days of high quality early learning over a 40, 42 week period in the year continuously, that will put them on the track to be ready and be high performers in school. And they will be ready to absorb everything that they have to absorb and kinder and year one to succeed. For those who are critical of the childcare sector and don't understand the difference between not-for-profit and profit-based centres, just explain it for us. There are no restrictions in terms of who can access the childcare subsidy around whether they are a private operator, so that is a company that operates for profit, or whether they are not-for-profit organisation. So the childcare subsidy is agnostic on that. And so as a result in Australia, we have childcare operators like Goodstart that are not-for-profit. There are other not-for-profit providers in the market. We've got privately owned companies and also publicly listed entities in the market. And they'd generally be profit-based? Yes, they're all, they're all, if they're not not-for-profit, they are all profit-based. We also have state and local council-run providers as well. So the grumble I hear from other parents is that fees are still going up. How does that happen in a not-for-profit? And they are because we've all seen the news inflation is going up, costs are rising. So, for example, we provide in most of our good startup centres um, where we have the facilities to do it and it's safe to do it, we provide morning tea, probably breakfast, lunch, afternoon tea in a usual sort of 7am to 6pm program. So that requires food, it requires labour. And so just on the food front alone, we've seen price increases of up to 20%, if not more. So when you compound that then with increasing labour cost, you increase that then with rising rent costs, all of these things add up. And so for a not-for-profit provider, we at least have to cover our costs. That's just what any business needs to do to remain viable. But every price fee increase we know and think about very deeply because we know that the impact that it has on family budgets. When the childcare subsidy was increased in 2018, that saw an initial sort of improvement on family budgets by over the sort of first nine months. But with inflation, increasing costs of things, and also from a family perspective, their wages not increasing. We've largely seen the benefit of that childcare subsidy increase wash through the system. So no wonder parents are feeling pain and also questioning why are fees going up? They've just gone up. And on average, over the last 12 months, fees have gone up by 6%. That's pretty impactful on the family budget. Yeah, it absolutely is. And so if we say we took a conservative view on what universal childcare could look like, so that is increase the subsidy to 95%, so it covers 95% of the cost for most families. If we, if we ran that scenario, then the average family earning 116000 per year, which is for a family, that's generally the household income on average, 
they could have more than $10,000 back in their family budget each year if the subsidy covers 95% of the cost for most families. $10,000 a year, that's a lot, especially when you consider that currently about 27% of family budgets are going to early learning costs. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. How do you stop this being perceived as just a women's issue? Because it's not a women's issue. It's a society issue. It's a family issue. Well, I hope that's one of the good things that has come out of the pandemic, I hope, is that you know, we know, we've all seen the research on the pandemic and how caring responsibilities have shifted slightly between men and women, if we're talking about heterosexual family dynamics. But still predominantly women do take on the caring responsibilities, the domestic duties in the household. And we, we need to change that as a society more broadly. We need to value our place and our role as women in our country and the contribution that we make. And I have to say I'm really tired of hearing the terms like care economy. It softens and devalues the work that we do and the contribution that we make. If it wasn't for us cooking the meals, cleaning the house, doing the kid run, we play an important role. Look, I'm lucky to have a, you know, my husband is, um, he probably does more of the share of the pickups and drop-offs than I do and bath time and bedtime. And I can see how when you're in that type of relationship, how important it is for us to see that it is everyone's responsibility. And that, you know, certainly my husband doesn't see that parenting is my responsibility as the mother. We see it as a joint responsibility. And that's really important for our kids to see that as well, to see that role modeling. But, you know, aside from childcare, making it universal, making it affordable and accessible definitely has the benefit of then improving women's participation in work. And there's no doubt about that. But that's not the only objective and outcome on its own intrinsically it is valuable because learning is valuable for kids that's what makes it important for our whole country making sure we're investing in the next generation who's going to take our country forward well in terms of women's participation the latest stats i read is there are around about 120,000 women who have limited access to high quality and affordable childcare, and that's kept them out of the workforce. So what you're mounting is an economic argument. I mean, if we're the most educated cohort of women in the world, and yet we've sunk to the level of 70th in terms of women's participation, we're clearly shooting ourselves in the foot by not finding these other ladders to help women get back into the workforce and, you know, share that load equally. I mean, part of that calculation is paid parental leave and dual access, isn't it? Absolutely. There's, there's a whole range of 
policy levers that need to be pulled if we're talking about increasing and improving women's participation in the economy and the workforce. And I, it just baffles me that we can be so we're, we're the highest in the world on our level of education, education, and that we waste the investment when it comes to workforce participation and also the pay gap as well. That we're not compensating women at the same rate as we compensate men. And we're not, therefore, we're not valuing women's contribution to our economy. And I just, it just doesn't make economic sense to me. And I know that there will be people that say, but, oh, actually, women's participation is increasing. Yes, but I have two hypotheses on that. I reckon the number that is being divided by is smaller. So the participation rate has actually, so those, those women actually looking for work that number is small and I think there are probably a whole lot of women who have checked out of looking for work overall. The second is labour force participation really only requires someone to be employed for one hour in a week. So I think that women's underemployment is probably quite high and our participation in part-time employment has actually increased. So when we think about it more broadly, we think about insecure work, we think about underemployment, we think about then the compounding impacts of that in terms of longer term financial security. You've got less super to draw down on. All of those things, you know, just continuing to not set us up for success in this country where everything points to women should be as successful as men. We certainly are getting educated at the highest rate. So look, in a federal election year, this is an election issue. What sort of traction are you getting? So we're definitely getting a lot of interest and support from business groups, from other women, men who support our issues, key organisations, of course, that you would expect. We're yet to see any significant policy response on both sides as we go into a federal election on these matters. Are you hopeful of movement? I'm hopeful of movement. We're not wasting any time and lobbying who we need to lobby and getting the messages out there. But I just encourage your listeners to think about what this means for them. They've got a choice when they go to the ballot box in May and they can choose to vote for an Australia that is fairer, more productive, more inclusive, more successful. And that success and better state is underpinned by policies that support really genuinely in a meaningful way women's participation in the economy and enable that universal early learning. It makes perfect sense, but your chances out of 10 of getting it over the line? I'm an eternal optimist, Sandra. Well, I love what you're doing. And look, Nicola Forrest is behind this from the Mindaroo Foundation, putting this Women for Progress group together. What I thought was quite clever is she's got high profile women from both sides of the political spectrum. You know, she's got the Julie Bishops and the Lucy Turnbulls. She's got Jay Weatherall, you know, the former South Australian Premier. And as I said to you the, the day I met you, you know, we need to see more men arguing this case because otherwise it's just dismissed as a women's issue. But you're getting cross-platform support, which is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really great. And I think, you know, the diversity, not just the political diversity of the women in the group, but also the cultural diversity, the diversity of backgrounds. I mean, you've got business leaders as well as social advocates. And so it's really exciting to see that, you know, us wanting Australia to be better and we see that better future being about women's participation 
and about the participation of our kids in learning, that's the thing that has brought us all together. And it doesn't matter what political persuasion you are or what your job is or where you live, that's the glue that binds us. And that's um, it's really heartening to know that I'm part of that group, but also that group speaks to so many other people who have signed the petition, who reach out to us on social media, who want to learn more about the work that we're doing and have been and are so supportive of it. And I think that indicates that we're ready for change. We really are ready. Whether either side of politics listens to that in the election and turns that into a policy, meaningful policy response, I don't know. But I definitely think we've tapped into something that not just an issue that we care about, but others care about it deeply too. You're a, a woman from North Queensland who now holds a degree in psychology and law. You're an Indigenous woman, and proudly so, and non-executive director at Good Start, and you hold all of these other roles. Where does the social conscience come from and what drives you? So I'm Google Yalanji from the Daintree Rainforest, and my social conscience really comes from that. My grandfather and grandmother on my father's side, so my Aboriginal grandparents, were always so focused on making sure all of their grandkids and great-grandchildren understood their culture but also understood the world, the broader world that we lived in and that that wasn't necessarily so kind to my people. It certainly wasn't kind to them. They said, you know, you've got to get an education in white man's way as well to be able to make the change that we see needs to happen. And, you know, I grew up in a small country town and lived in a paradox, which was I came from born into two of the largest families in that small country town. So, you know, effectively from quite a large group of people in that town, yet always felt that I was on the fringes, always on the edge because of the daily racism that I experienced, my family experienced, my people experienced. And I think that sort of instilled that daily struggle really, yeah, it doesn't leave you and you understand what it's like to be hurt. You understand, you see injustice. Having that guidance from my grandparents around being strong in culture but also getting an education and using that to make good coupled with my own personal experience and what I observed in the injustices that I observed, you know, that stuff just comes together and, you know. Well, you're a successful woman in your own right now. Do you see racism every day now? Yeah, it's it's the casual racism. It's just like the casual sexism that as women we probably all experience. And the thing that I probably experience the most personally is, um, oh, you're so articulate. That's the one that still gets me. And it's also sort of says, well, what was your expectation? Do you say that to other people? Do you say that to non-Indigenous people? And I think most of the time the answer is no. But, you know, I'm older and less patient and polite these days, so I usually call it when I hear it. Thankfully, I have to say, thankfully, I don't experience the level of racism that I know that others in my community experience on a day-to-day basis. I've got a roof over my head. There are so many people in my community that do not, and they don't because they are Aboriginal. My kids are able to access early learning, education, They're able to do whatever it is 
that they want to do and we can afford for them to do. But a lot of people in my community cannot because they're Aboriginal and they are prohibited from doing that. So I am aware of my privilege. So I'm very conscious of that, but it's not over yet. We have so far to go as a country when it comes to telling the truth about who we are and where we've come from. And not in a way that is about blaming. It's about accepting and moving on yeah. and dealing with our reality and being honest. And building us so much better Australia together. That's what I really am hopeful for. Yeah. Your eyes sort of look to the distant future as if that is the utopia that we may get to one day. Do you think you will in your lifetime? I really hope so. And, you know, we started this conversation around early learning and I go back there when I think about my answer to your question because I look at the generations now. So those in their early 20s coming through high school and then I look at my own kids and their friends, you know, in early primary school and, you know, around three or four-year-olds, they are so determined and informed they have ideas and they're not afraid to talk about them and share them and pursue them. And that gives me so much hope. And they're not afraid to speak up as well and to challenge the status quo. And I think about myself when I was in primary school or as a teenager, I was too polite. My kids are not. If they see an injustice, they will call it out and they'll speak about it. And then that's, I think, for a lot of young people, you know, you look at Brittany Higgins and you look at Grace Tame. They're not afraid to call stuff out and I think we need more of that and I'm hopeful that the current generation and those coming through will do more of that and that will lead to the Australia that I hope for. So I do hope that I see that for my kids, for my grandkids and every kid in Australia. Do you feel a degree of pressure to carry a torch as it were and show what's possible. I mean, there are scores and scores of successful Indigenous Australians across so many sectors. But I just wonder what the weight is like sometimes for you, because I look at the elevation to the number of boards and bodies that you work with and represent. So do you carry that weight at all? Absolutely. And what's that like? What does that mean to you? I, at the risk of generalising, I think most Aboriginal people who are educated have a job have achieved whatever it is that they want to achieve, feel a great sense of responsibility, not only for building a better future for those to come, but also to be faithful to the legacy of those who built the pathway for us to go down. I stand on the shoulders of so many, so many strong men and women who are Aboriginal who I've known personally, who've been in my family, who I've witnessed from afar and read about. They've created an Australia where I could go to university, I could finish school. And so now it's my responsibility to leave a better country for those to come. Absolutely, I feel that responsibility. That is what drives all of the decisions that I make about what boards I join, whether I am a non-executive director or not, what work I do, I don't do, it informs everything. I mentioned you're on the Greater Sydney Commission. What's the work in front of you right now and what are you hoping to change? Yeah, we've got a big program of work in front of us at the moment. I don't know if you heard this just before Christmas that the Premier announced the Greater Sydney 
which is currently comprised of a metropolis of three cities, the eastern city, the central city and western Sydney. So that will grow from those three cities to six cities that stretches from the Illawarra up to the Hunter and out to the Blue Mountains. So our job at the Greater Sydney Commission, soon to be the Greater Cities Commission, is to work with our stakeholders in that new region to build our vision, our 30, 40-year vision for that region. And that's really exciting. So, you know, coming back again to where we began this conversation, what does that mean for the next generation of kids in the region for their education, for where they're going to live, what jobs they're going to have, what opportunity? What are the biggest hurdles facing the Greater Sydney Commission at the moment? I've got family who are town planners and so I always think through, you know, how do you get um, transport links to ports and get cars off roads and there's so many elements. Yeah, so I'm the social commissioner so my I interpret that portfolio as being about putting the people back into the planning for Sydney's future. Now that might seem oxymoronic because you would automatically assume, well, surely cities are built around people because people use them but that's not necessarily how planning plays out. And my particular focus is making sure that no one is left behind as we grow Sydney and the new region. So it is things like we need to answer big questions, like all of the stuff that you've talked about, but my particular focus is how do we make sure that we've got the right mix of housing in the right locations that are not islands but are connected to the fit-for-life infrastructure that we all need to be able to live our lives. So there's a lot of exciting stuff to come, but it's uh, bigger than the infrastructure, the hard infrastructure. It's also about the people. So other than being passionate about childcare, being a proud Indigenous woman, you've worked so hard in the policy space to empower Indigenous Australians across the board And one of those key areas was becoming the inaugural CEO of Supply Nation. So tell us about Supply Nation and what it does and what it means to you. Well, Supply Nation is the country's only organisation at a federal level that helps get the largest buyers of goods and services in the country, if not the world, to buy goods and services off Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander-owned business. And it's all about, it's one way to close the material inequality gap. What's the best way to grow business? Get customers to buy more goods and services from it. Promote the business, increase its awareness and accessibility. Absolutely. So, but you can achieve that transactionally, tapping a big company on the shoulder and we did that. Look, there's this great business that sells bottled water, Coles, you should buy from them. You can do it transactionally that way, but that's, it's a hit and miss and it takes a lot of time and effort and that's, it's small scale. We wanted to go, and I say we deliberately because there was a group of us that we wanted to be bigger and we wanted the change to be systemic and beyond my leadership, beyond the leadership of any minister, of any CEO of any company. So we had to go and lobby for policy change and it was we it was I was there with indigenous business owners I was there with CEOs of large companies like Commonwealth Bank saying we've got to do this government and government you need to actually provide an environment and you need to you need to step up to the mark so you as the biggest as the country's biggest buyer of goods and services you actually need to have a policy that makes sure that your agencies are buying 
as many goods and services as possible from Indigenous business because that will have a stimulatory effect. And once that happens, the sky is absolutely the limit. And so, yeah, now that's, that's what we're seeing. So when I was the CEO of Supply Nation, I was really excited about this in the first year when we first started from nothing. We reported $1 million in goods and services bought by combination of government and corporates and uh, from Indigenous business. And so, wow, off a base of really nothing, a million dollars. Now it's in the billions of dollars. So ten over 10 years later, it's in the billions of dollars. I guess the trick with that sort of endeavour is making sure it lasts long after you. And there are so many Indigenous enterprises across the country that are sustainable long-term, I mean, you must get really excited about it. Yeah, really excited about it. And it's not only capturing Australian audiences, is it? I mean, you're, you're getting interest internationally as well. Absolutely. So we see uh, Indigenous businesses exporting overseas. We see companies and um, consumers from overseas markets interested in domestic Indigenous products. So, yeah, I mean, we just wanted to create the environment to enable that success and then we figured out, well our theory was so long as indigenous business can supply the goods and services and the buyers willing to buy really the sky is the limit so let's just create that environment and then you build a bridge and they have to stand on their own two feet yeah and and they're doing way more than that i mean in aggregate just the federal government alone since it's had its indigenous procurement policy in place has spent around $6 billion with Indigenous business. That's just the federal government. That doesn't include state and territory governments. It doesn't include corporate spend. It doesn't include consumer spend. So it's um, pretty remarkable. Well, Natalie Walker, good luck with the plan and uh, this petition. I think it's really worthwhile what you're doing and I applaud your efforts. Thanks so much for joining us here at Short Black. Thanks, Andrew. You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.